Hello, and thanks for joining us on the Writers' Meeting with Dr. Michael Lightman. Hello, hello. And our first topic for today, it's the 46th anniversary of the Entebbe Operation, Operation Jonathan, 46 years ago in June 76, an Air France plane was hijacked on its way to Paris after refueling in Libya. It landed at Entebbe, a city in Uganda that provided refuge for the terrorists and their 248 hostages. Most of the passengers were released and only the Israelis and the pilot remained with the crew that did not want to leave them. As soon as the hijacking became known in Israel, one of the most amazing operations in our history began in a country with no diplomatic relations. Our forces killed terrorists, released most of the hostages unharmed, and Jonathan Netanyahu, commander of the elite unit that led the operation, was killed. The operation was also named in, after him, Operation Jonathan. How was this amazing plan, its implementation, how was it all possible? Back then, I served in the army. Uh, oh, next to the city of Rehovot, the base next to the city of Rehovot. And I knew about this operation also on the way back. When the plane came back from there, uh, they landed in our base. In our camp, they got organized and went on to the Ben-Gurion airport in order to already have a representative landing. The Telnov base. Yeah, I didn't want to say, but yeah, Telnov. Ah, I remember it really well. What can I tell you? I really see it as a correct, good operation. And I wish that today and the future we'll do things with such a sense of necessity, sense of justice. Were you excited? Extremely excited. Very excited, yes. We were all very excited. Some of the relatives of their relatives came to the Telnov airport and some of them to the Ben-Gurion airport. I don't exactly know. To the main airport back then. Ben-Gurion. And it was very unique, special. The releasing of the hostages really made a lot of noise in the world and impressed the entire world. Is it the the Jewish courage or what exactly impressed the world? First of all, it's very interesting. The operation itself is very interesting, that it's done by Israel, a small country with a small army, with a small people. And as everyone knows, Israel aren't uh, a people that attacks or isn't a nation that attacks or kills or does things like that. So it was really a very important operation. 
It made lots of noise and left a strong impression. What made the impression? What is the decision, implementation, results, necessity, all these things? You had it all there. You had it all. Besides that, really, it's not simple. Because within hours, they needed to prepare everything and to head there. Because you couldn't get the plane out of there and the passengers. But it was um, a few planes needed to fly there. And it, it had to be kept a secret, undercover, in the right, correct, proper way. It's not simple. It was clear to Israel that they're going to try and release the hostages despite the great danger. Is this mutual responsibility? Look, those were times of courage and not stinky diplomacy. And therefore... And therefore, we succeeded. We succeed when we get up, and as it says in the Torah, that if someone tries to kill you, you need to kill them first. So if we do it, we succeed. And that's what happened there. Without trying to, you know, transcrutinize things, trying to calm things down. But that's what needs to be done. Where did the courage from back then go? It all depends on politics. It all depends on the government. Well, that's it. Today's government versus the government of back then. Imagine were you to throw a few good bombs, even a nuclear bomb, on Hezbollah or something there in Lebanon or in Syria and you would have finished with it altogether a long time ago and you wouldn't have needed to be concerned with anything else and maybe by that you would have you'd calm everyone down from Syria to Gaza so what changed the government changed what changed is that the state of Israel started being a country like all other nations and in that it loses because it takes the rules of other nations and therefore can't fight can't fight by its power. Where did it came to its mind to take these laws from? Why doesn't it keep to its own rules? Uh, because that's how the nations of the world pressure us. And we agree, back then we agreed to nothing. But we do this and that. It's like after München, right? We didn't talk here, there, to buy, to pay here, to do something there. 
But Golda says, this is what we do. We kill anyone who is related to it. And that's what they did. The change that we're talking about in the government, is it a change in the nation that's expressed the government? No. No, there's no problem with the nation. The nation will accept it. The government's weak. Can there be such relations and such a demonstration of courage among us today? It all depends on the government. And today's government, sure you can't do it. And what does the government depend on? Who does it depend on? Those that you elect? Okay. Another question, if today we'll have similar operations, will it impress the nations of the world like in Antebbe or undoubtedly, undoubtedly, only that we need to do it. So, if the nation of Israel keeps the laws of the Torah, even corporeal ones, like if someone comes to kill you, you kill him first, it will impress the world? Yes, it will. If you do what you must do, then the Creator will arrange it so that it will impress the world. If if you bend, then you feel like you're in a concentration camp. Okay, Okay, moving on to our next item. Norma, please. Good morning. The Ministry of Diaspora has established the Directorate for Jewish Renewal with the purpose of assisting the general public with projects and content without any difference between the different denominations or form, conservative, orthodox, or any other stream or denomination. Their budget is 60 million shekels per year. It's divided between workshops, study tours, events, lectures, seminars, and cultural community events with the purpose of ensuring the unity of the Jewish people. In a correct, in a, in the correct way, in a corrected way, what is Jewish renewal supposed to be like? I have no idea what they're talking about there, that these are their goals. I can only say that it will give nothing. And simply, you know, dividing the budget, making room for those that work for them and the different parties, different movements. And by that, to bring closer a few more people that voted for them and that way to make room for them because since there's elections and after the elections you need that too so I see no concern in it neither for the citizens, nor for the nation of Israel, nor for nothing else. 
So that's why the question is in a corrected way, form. Suppose regardless of this project, in your eyes, what is Jewish renewal? In my eyes, Jewish renewal is that really we begin to care for the different plans in kindergartens, schools, projects in kindergartens, schools, on TV, in every possible way in order to explain to the nation what is their role, the, the purpose of their existence, their destiny, that if we don't do it one way or another, we're destroying ourselves and will disappear. So to explain it properly, correctly, clearly, that ahead of us now, we have an opportunity of making a nation out of ourselves and bringing ourselves to the center stage of the world, or we vanish off the face of the planet, and we already see how it's happening, and then we won't be able to survive, neither as a nation nor as a country. Artificial concern for unity of the Jewish people, of the nation of Israel, is it not something good? Is it not a good beginning, starting point? Not that it's not a starting point. It's a, it's a bad starting point, bad one. Because by that, we're showing all nations, all the nations of the world, how weak we are, that we have no plans for the future, and that really, there's no good plan, there's no serious program, no serious goal. So what for? What is it all for then? But, you know, in order to get a few tens of millions of dollars or shekels, doesn't matter what, from the country's budget, and to invest it in different positions, give it to different people that we owe them favors. So here we're not talking about the final thought and the initial, the final action and the initial thought. Of course not, because the thought is corrupted to begin with. Of course. What elements does the process of the renewal of the Jewish people include? First of all, the goal. It needs to suit the laws of nature. Knowing the laws of nature that lead us to the implementation of the goal. Publicity, serious publicity to the entire nation, where are we headed, where, what are we headed for, that the entire, uh, that it's a long-term operation, and that it's not only to publicize, but we need to teach and measure what we, what we do on each and every step. Also, 
we need to be in some kind of a very broad system of dissemination within Israel. We need to prepare ourselves for any actions that might be held against us in a way that those that don't want us are our enemy, uh, is our hater, and we treat them as an enemy, etc. Meaning here there needs to be a feeling of necessity, a feeling of real inner need that we keep to, cling to, and that we act as in time of danger. Such a change, where will it lead us to as a nation? To unity. And we need nothing besides that. And from that unity that we will be able to turn to the Creator. That's it. How is Jewish renewal supposed to be expressed? And that we understand that besides our connection, no one can save us. As Balasulam writes, that then no nation, no government, no power can harm us. How do we achieve the renewal of the Jewish people and what should we put the emphasis on? Publicity, explanation on different networks and different ways. We need to explain that the Jewish people has no choice. Every nation can have, can do what it wants, be as it wants, and that the days and years go by, but we can't. We are a special nation that lives only by the future. If we're not directed toward the correct future, then in a short period of time, we start feeling a very strong deterioration in all of our activities. Were you given an annual budget of 60 million shekels in order to bring to the renewal of the Jewish people, how would you invest it? I can't say. I have no idea. Uh, We need to consult people. We need to consult my friends. How do they look at these things? Sure, we want to use this money in the most beneficial way. But what does beneficial mean? What does it mean to beneficially use it? What do we want to get at the end of the day? How can we promise ourselves that we will not spend this money in a short period of time without doing anything, without accomplishing anything? Also, from what I understand, it's, it's 60 million shekels. I don't see it as some kind of a large sum. 
It's uh, you need to think how to spend it effectively, in the most effective way. It's a project that, you know, no one also knows what will happen to it after the elections here in Israel, etc., etc., Okay, I'm done, Dudi. Why is it always so extreme? If you'll do your role, you'll, you're on the right track, the world will love you. If not, they'll kick you in the butt. Why, is, why always these two extremes in relation to Israel? That's how we always are, between heaven and earth. Either you ascend or you fall. But there's like a standard, there's a need for this role. So if we, we won't do it, someone else will come and do it. Something needs to happen. There can't be like a vacuum that no one will do it. You're saying this in relation to what? I'm talking about the role of Israel, that unless we bring to the unity of the nation of Israel and bring everyone to the Creator, then we'll be thrown out and we'll disperse in all other directions. True, and but, but there's a role here, that's what I'm saying. The role of the people of Israel is only in relation to the ascent, only connection and ascent. If it doesn't happen, then the nation of Israel is not realizing their role, and then they're no longer on the path of Torah, but they're on the path of suffering. Okay, so suppose we're thrown out of the country to the last person. No, no, I'm not saying that. Uh, You know, for a few more dozens of years, we could live this way too, but eventually we won't be able to exist. You also say, according to the new friends that enter the Israeli parliament, that become a part of the Israeli parliament, how much they want to throw you out of the country and cancel the state of Israel altogether. Okay. Okay, moving on to our next topic, China. G7 against China, Chaim. Hello, Rob. Hello, Dr. Lightman. Hello. In 2013, China launched an initiative called the Belt and Road Initiative, in which it invests in infrastructure projects all over the world. A country that wants China to invest signs an agreement with China, and China builds large projects there for monetary gain or control or both. Because it saves countries the investment, as of March 2022 this year, 147 countries have already signed such agreements with China, including relatively rich and powerful countries like Russia or Italy, which is also a member of the G7, by the way. The U.S. was startled by the successful initiative, and China offered it to join the program, but the U.S. preferred to go the other way. And about two weeks ago, it convened the leaders of the G7 countries, the U.S., Canada, Germany, Japan, France, Britain, and Italy, to set up a $600 billion investment initiative to counter it. The idea is to create weight against the Chinese initiative and thus prevent further spread in the same way by simply investing in infrastructure. 
the Chinese initiative has great influence in Israel too, even though Israel has not signed any agreement. But for example, the new Haifa port, the new Ashdod port, the light rail here in Israel, Chinese-owned Nuva, um, Israeli dairy company, uh, it's all a result of Chinese investments in Israel. The question is, why is China doing it, sometimes even without any monetary gain? What's the idea of investing so much in other countries, other places? It's an invasion. What is there to say? Invasion. China, this way, conquers countries, conquers the world. It doesn't need to do it with the help of the army or anything else. It enters these countries in a way that is acceptable. Why? Why is it acceptable? Because seemingly it's only a monetary investment. Yeah, but monetary investment means influence. Influence and influence is to conquer. Okay. This initiative, by the way, is being led by the current Chinese Prime Minister, President, who has created this approach. What's the change? Because in the past, China, either they wanted no connection to the world whatsoever, or they only produced things for the world, but they didn't try to make any kind of impact beyond it. The time has come. That's how they developed. That at first, they wanted to be closed inside themselves. Then, just to form ourselves a bit on the inside and produce for the rest of the world like a big factory out of China. And afterwards, already as a result of all these forces and infrastructure that they've built, now they want to go out like they built in China, uh, infrastructure, roads, uh, railways, etc., etc. They want to do it in the, the entire world now. They're willing to make agreements, build these infrastructures, but that it will remain in Chinese hands. What does it show, the change in approach? Invasion into foreign countries that every time you buy another part and another part in foreign countries and that's considered as though China is invading them and conquering them. And why has it changed from a state where they were completely closed inside themselves? That's how they started developing. First of all, they started building their own country building different factories and different production lines. They were willing to work for a dollar a day, etc., until it developed and they want to do it everywhere, all around the world. So that's my question. What developed that caused them to change their behavior? Just like they saw on themselves how much it developed them and that they become then a part 
of foreign countries. They want to do the same, that they enter these foreign countries. They give them credit, they give them power, they give them relations, and then those countries, they as if start belonging to China. So actually, if it's really this kind of invasion, then the U.S. made the correct move that it didn't join this uh, this initiative but created a counter-block. Of course, the Americans don't want to be under China, obviously. Actually, any country fights for its independence. Only there are those that don't care about their independence, but they're willing to sell themselves The main thing is that they have food. Another country doesn't care about selling its independence, about what will happen in 20 years. The main thing now is that someone, uh, you know, is in power. And the Chinese already know how to play with it correctly. Do you think that the creation of such a block can stop the Chinese expansion? I have no idea. But the magnitude, the volume is really global. What's happening really is that there's a kind of war going on here. Now, in a war, we say there are no winners. Eventually, everyone loses. But here, there's a kind of an economic war. It's not that much with weapons or anything. Here, too, there's the same calculation, or here there can be a winner. Suppose China will take over the world. How do you see this? Mm, It's not that that clear. It's not that clear, because what's clear is that... Does that gain our China, but along with it, gain also those that citizens of those countries that it works for? And eventually, of course, just like our ego, um, you know, because our ego dictates everything, then eventually, one way or another, besides the host, Besides the boss, everyone else loses. That, that's the law of the market. That if I'm the proprietor, I will not allow you to gain from the same produce or product, but eventually I squeeze all the milk out of you and you remain with the water. In this war between the G7 and China, in this economic war, is there some ideological war, ideologies, civilizations fighting against it. No, no, no. China has no ideology for a long time now. It's just about control. That's their ideology now. Of course. The Chinese, they're very practical. So, in conclusion, how do you see the development of relations between China and G7 countries? I think that China will know how to play with them, and eventually it'll win. Until, uh, unless it falls apart on the way. Why should it fall apart? Fall apart because, nonetheless, it too 
in China, there are different currents that will grow and grow. That's how development is. It's the nature of development that then start in the country, different parties start uh, forming and different forces that will be in favor and against and then there you will also have those that will be in favor of the Americans, American control, Those uh, there will be those that will be against. Uh, these are things that will take dozens and dozens of years. So, in the long run, you see China winning the war, the economic war, but that eventually, with development, different forces from within China will start undermining the stability there? I think so. I think that China will not win because its foundation is nonetheless uh, the foundation of the one socialistic force, and therefore it will not win. Why will one prevent the other? Because one force can't win. Win several forces that want to create the correct connection between them, and then they act for the sake of the country. That's what wins. Okay, thank you. Okay, moving on to our next topic. Shock in the Chicago Jewish community after the shooting, lethal shooting. Four of the seven killed in Chicago, Illinois, on Independence Day were Jews. In Highland Park, a suburb of Chicago where the attack took place, half of the 30,000 residents are Jews, including a significant number of Israelis. The local Jewish community remained in a state of shock and trauma as a result of the incident. A local synagogue reports that the suspect visited the community during Passover this year. But was considered a suspect. But he was suspected by security guards. However, police did not see the shooting as an anti-Semitic event. A veteran student of yours that belongs to the Jewish community in Chicago is asking. I feel responsible for not working hard enough. I'm trying to do the things you and the Kabbalists tell us to do. I continue to reach out to my ten and disseminate. What else can I do? I don't know. Again, in relation to this question, too, I talked about it so much that Jews in America are in danger and nothing's going to help them. But... They need to do what they need to do as Jews in America. That's it. I have nothing to add. The Creator will one way or another arrange such suffering and blows for them that they will not be able to sit like they did. That if you talk to any Jew in the U.S., they're all snotty. For them, Israel is nothing. Jews are nothing. The Torah is nothing. In short, everything is rubbish and rubbish. 
in the way that they relate to the Jewish people, the state of Israel, and there's nothing to say. Sure, they will get stronger and stronger blows. And they've positioned themselves in such a distant position, isolated from us, that I don't feel they're suffering at all. I don't feel it. The shooting was not um, defined as something anti-Semitic, but everyone understands that it's not. It didn't just happen so by chance. The shooter planned it several weeks in advance, even though that his motive is not yet known. Do you think that it was maybe? I think that it was against Jews. That it's anti-Semitic that it's not the first case and not the last one. She is your student. She's familiar with the method of correction because she's been studying for many years. She's part of the community there. She's asking, what else can she do? There's nothing to do. You were with me in the U.S. several times. And you see, you saw how we wanted to approach them, talk to them, but nothing. There's nothing you can do until further suffering will accumulate. All the suffering will accumulate to one place where they cannot stand it anymore, and then maybe it will be possible to talk to them and decide on certain measures and actions to be taken, but in the meantime, no. With their snotty nose, with their pride, with their disregard and disrespect for the people of Israel, there is nothing you can do for the nation of Israel. Okay, I see. So actually, that's it. We've adjourned our meeting. Thank you very much. Good luck to you and all the best.